Hi, thanks for listening to this podcast. Today we're going to be talking about localization and lateralization of human brain functioning. There's uh, a company in a um, PowerPoint presentation for this podcast as it's um, made primarily for my own A-level students and this material and the presentation correspond to AQA specification 7182 where we look at biopsychology in quite some depth. So this will be a bit longer than most of the usual podcasts as it takes in localization and lateralization. So we'll be looking at the areas of the brain that are responsible for visual, motor and language functioning. Essentially how we see, how we move, how we process information and so obviously with the language bit that will be about sight and sound. But we'll look at um, all kind of sensory inputs as well in a little bit of detail. So we'll also look at how these um, links to the functions for both these localizations or locations in the brain, the areas of the brain, and then this lateralization idea that the left and right sides or hemispheres of the brain have fundamentally different functions attached to them. We're going to look at how this information has been discovered, the major research methods behind that, and then the extent to which the evidence actually supports a specific idea of either there being areas of the brain that account for these functions or hemispheres of the brain. Now, there is a presentation that goes along with this, as I said. On the presentation, there are some activities that I'll refer to briefly. But um, the first slide I have is just taken from the textbook and it just has um, <clears throat> a cross-section of the brain and it's showing one, two, three, four, five, six areas that the specification wants you to know about. These as being localised um, parts of the brain for specific functions. So prior to look, going through that, we'll just split the brain into the areas that people talk about generally. So at the front, we do have the frontal lobe. And then if we're going <coughs> from the front to the back, um, the long, along the side, almost like a, a, the side wall of the brain, we'd say that area is called the parietal lobe. Then at the back, we have the occipital or the occipital lobe. Um, and then just underneath the parietal lobe, right in the middle at the bottom, we have what's called the temporal lobe. Now, these areas do have many different functions associated with them, and we'll just mention them as we're going back through to talk about the areas within these lobes, which we'll be focusing on in this presentation, or this podcast, sorry. Uh, I have to admit that it does work better with the visual aids if people are able to have that presentation. As I said, it's available on request, dmcdonald at btg-secondary.lambeth.com. .sch.uk. Okay, so one activity I like students to do with that diagram is we have the diagram in with um, arrows on it but no labels next to them. And I try to get the students just to do it from memory to look back through those um, areas themselves just to, and try and see how many they can remember. The following slide does have the spoiler of it where we actually go through it. So if we start at the frontal lobe, and well, towards the back of the frontal lobe, actually, there's an area of the brain called the motor cortex, which is involved in voluntary movement. So 
things like, you know, just moving your hand from left to right, if you're writing, you know, moving your head left to right, you know, just um, any movements we choose to make as opposed to reflex movements would be associated with this part of the brain. And now over what we could call maybe a border and into the parietal lobe, we have an area of the brain called the somatosensory cortex. Now, this is primarily associated with touch and pain, feelings like that, tactile sensory inputs, but it also coordinates sensory inputs from different areas of the brain. So things like, is it hot? Is it cold? Is it rough? Is it smooth? You know, just um, uh, that would be the kind of inputs that it would be processing primarily. Now, as we move again in the top of the parietal lobe, we have an area of the brain called Wernicke's area, which is associated with processing or understanding speech. And towards the back of our diagram, well, at the very back of it, in the occipital lobe, we have the visual cortex, which processes visual information. We'll have the um, visual cortex is actually directly connected to the eye via the optic nerve, and it will receive electrical impulses um, from the well uh, from the the retina and then that information we make sense of it we process that information in the visual cortex now as we go back to the pretty much dead center of the diagram we have an area of the brain called the auditory cortex which is in the temporal lobe which is associated with processing acoustic information much in the same way that the um the visual cortex will receive information from the uh, the retina. The auditory cortex receives information from the cochlea and, and, and the inner ear. Now, next to this, and where we have what we call Broca's area. Broca's area is an area we're going to look at in a little bit of detail quite soon. It was discovered by a French neurologist, one of the original uh, neurologists who discovered that people who had damage to this area of the brain had problems making speech. Now, Broca's area is associated with one of the common symptoms of strokes where people can have problem producing speech. So that's us. We've went through those areas of the brain that we have. So when we want to move, the motor cortex would be active. When we are receiving sensory information, particularly about touch, it would be the somatosensory cortex. When we are understanding or looking to perform a task we have to process speech, that would be Wernicke's area. Our visual cortex is very active when we're processing visual information, as is our auditory, auditory cortex, sorry, when we are processing acoustic information, and then Broca's area when we're actually speaking. Now, when I'm saying very active, beyond the case study research method, which we'll look at in a little bit of detail, the early areas of these brains, <coughs> the earliest areas of the brain here were found looking at things like, well, case study information while somebody's alive, then post-mortem examination. With the advent of um, neuroimaging, we can use technology like uh, MRI machines, where with an MRI scanner, there's a, another podcast called Brain Imaging Later, um, we essentially measure the blood flow in different areas of the brain when they are active when people, and associate those areas with tasks that we've given people to perform within the scanner. So that's a couple of the areas where we get some of the evidence for this. Now, interesting activity that can be done if people do have the brain diagram from the uh, this presentation is to try and you know trace it and then 
trace trace a copy of the diagram so trace a copy of the diagram and then put it on the clear surface push it down on that if you can to aid the process now as you're doing this a good thing to do is to look through all the areas of the brain that you're actually using at the same time while you're doing it so if we go back to just looking from the the order that we've looked at your motor cortex is going to be um helping you to move the the pen as you're going around the outline of the brain for example and then when you're adding in the specific areas of the brain your somatosensory cortex would be um helping you to change the pressure on the pen and where 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 you're turning the pen and also for holding the paper in place be your somatosensory cortex if you are listening to the instructions while you're doing it uh, that could be an example where Wernicke's area would be involved your visual cortex is allowing you to trace the follow the picture of the outline under the pen and again if you were um listening to the instructions while you were doing it, you would be um, processing that information in your auditory cortex. If I was able to ask anybody if they understood what was saying there or ask for questions, people would use Broca's area of the brain uh, in order to to ask those questions. Now, just looking at that activity, it's just an idea of how these areas of the brain, people can often get worried about, oh, there's so much to remember. But when we actually just look at them quite simply with what they're doing, if you're writing an essay on this, essentially after you've defined what localization of functioning is, you would basically just go through and as the level of detail that we've done here, say what lobe the motor cortex is in, say what um it's involved with, so voluntary movement, give an example. You could give the example of even writing the essay while you're writing the essay, or you could give the exam examples of just everyday activities, or even the one that we have just done there. So in terms of research evidence, as we mentioned, beyond the use of MRI machines, MRI scanners, and different um, things like ERP machines or EEG machines, which we'll come into more detail with at a later podcast, just to maintain focus just now. The early research done in this was done in uh, was case studies. So Broca and Wernicke, the areas of the brain, were named after the men who performed those case studies. In the case of Broca's area, Broca found that his patient, who he anonymised as Tan, because it was the only syllable he could produce following his injury, he had um, damage to that area of the brain that we're looking at um, is associated with production of speech. His colleague Wernicke found a, a different case of um, brain damage involving the area of the brain that he looked at, which um, was involved in processing speech. So with Wernicke's patients, they could, they could speak, but they would have problems understanding particular speech or interpreting that speech. Whereas with Broca's, um, patient, the opposite was the case. They could um, understand, the receive the speech and process the language, but they had problems actually produce, producing it. So this gives us um, a little bit of evidence there, coupled with the um, use of brain imaging, which suggests links between these areas of brain. And moreover, another um, piece of brain imaging research conducted by um, a researcher called Fedorenko found that it's not just the language that seems to be involved with uh, Broca's area, as he found associations with um, other complex cognitive tasks, things like mathematics, logic-based uh, um, 
tasks as well. So that's a, a round of our research evidence there. Now, the the usual thing we have, we can evaluate the research method of um, using brain imaging techniques has been very reliable. It is very good for um, controlling extraneous variables. However, it is done in a brain imaging research is done in labs, hugely controlled conditions, and so it will lack ecological validity for us. So something for us to bear in mind. Now in terms of the case studies of Broca and Wernicke, amazing groundbreaking research done in the late 19th century, uh, but both of them very small samples of people, very difficult for us to see how we can actually um, generalise from them. And more important than this as well, we have a big issue that we have is with case studies like that, the before and after comparison of the brain. You know, just we don't know what the what these um, patients were like prior to any accident. In terms of being having very valid research, it's good if we can look at something before an area of the brain has been damaged and then after the area of the brain has been damaged. This before or after comparison ultimately gives us an independent variable and we can infer a, a causal link from that. So it's a little bit of um, strengths and limitations for the research. Now, there are challenges to the actual idea of localization as well. Some people think that it's actually about the degree of communication between areas of the brain. As we looked at in our example, at any given time, you're using all of these areas of the brain simultaneously. Now, we've also, we'll be going on to look at something called functional recovery, where other areas of the brain can compensate for damage to one area, one area of the brain. Now, this idea is sometimes called equipotentiality, the idea that each area of the brain has an almost equal or a similar capacity to pick up the functions of another area of the brain. That would be a challenge to this direct idea that, say, the motors, motor, uh, motor cortex is associated with motor movement, you know, just, and that's the only area that's involved with it. If we look at language in particular, all the areas of communication. Now, another thing from this could be the areas of the brain that are communicating with each other. The extent of damage might actually not just be affecting the location, it could be affecting the location's ability to communicate with other areas. So while we're looking at there being a lot of evidence for localization, we have to also consider the fact that we might overstate the case in some, uh, some places. Now, beyond this, there's also an interesting individual difference to note that um, Broca's area in females is actually larger than it is in males. Now, we don't have to look at this as a limitation or a strength. It's just an interesting thing, you know, just in, there could be gender socialisation patterns to do with it, that, you know, females engage in more verbal communication than males. But we, we don't really have to answer that question. We just have to present it as an interesting um, individual difference between males and females. Now, moving on from this, we've criticised the research of people like Broca and Wernicke quite a bit um, in terms of maybe having a bit of a lack of validity been a long time ago, but this was a huge contribution to uh, neurology. Prior to this, brain studies had been very primitive, techniques like phrenology, feeling uh, bumps on the, the skull were um, in vogue, and so with this more methodical um, way of doing things, people like Broca and Wernicke were really contributing to the development of particularly of biopsychology. Now, when we look at doing essays on this, another thing for us to look at is that um, 
having real life applications. It's good for us to end this. Now, in terms of diagnosis and prognosis of strokes, the work and localization of function is a huge contribution there. You know, we can, if somebody is presenting with symptoms, you can look for an area of the brain to scan. Or if we know that there's an area of the brain that's um, had problems, we can then um, it, give prognosis and say it's likely that this functioning might be impaired. Now, if we can move from localization to lateralization, um, this is, this is a similar concept. It's more general, so though, so it's the idea of just rather than just the the locations, specific points, is that there's the idea of lateralization is that there are fundamentally different functions for different set. Uh, the different hemispheres of the brain, so the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. At the beginning of a discussion of this, some of the research, um, I like to go through questions, there's an area of the, the brain that can be seen on this diagram and in most common diagrams. Directly in the middle between the two hemispheres, it's a set of fibres called the corpus callosum. Now, this is important for some of the research we're going to look at because um, in people, cases of people with severe epilepsy, um, it's been known that they would cut this set of fibres, which would stop the left side of the brain communicating directly with the right side of the brain. Now, this research gave us a very unique um, research, propose, uh, research opportunity, and it led to something that was called split brain research. Split brain research has been some of the research that's shown us some of these abilities that seem to be, according to this research, more prevalent in the left or the right hemisphere of the brain. So just to discuss a bit about how split brain research is done. Um, I have a diagram here again on the presentation, but try and just uh, describe it to people visually. In split brain research, people would be put in a booth and they would be given a white board in front of them or a white screen in front of them and there would be a dot in the, directly in the middle of it that they would try to focus on. Now, they would focus on this because by focusing on this dot, they would be isolating what we call the left and right visual fields. Okay. Now, as some people will know, the left eye is actually directly connected to the right side of the brain um, and the right um, eye is directly connected to the left side of the brain. So what we have when somebody's directly focused on this um, dot in the middle, they are cutting off one of the visual fields if, if words are only presented to one of them. So, for example, if I present the word face to the right visual field, that is still going to go in through the... Um, through the right eye and be processed in the left side of the brain. If I ask a person to say what they see in that case, the information from the right side of the visual field goes into the left side of the brain where they do have language and they are able to say the word face if I presented the word face. Now, more interestingly, because the, the corpus callosum being cut, we don't have that direct communication. If I present the word face to the left visual field, so it goes in through the left eye and to the right side of the brain, the brain won't say anything because it doesn't have the ability, according to this research, uh, to produce language. That would be a left hemisphere function. So 
literally the person would be saying nothing, but they would be able to draw that information for me. So if they're asked that, they're not able to say what they've seen, but they would be able to, to draw it because we do think that motor functioning, ability to move, is primarily associated with um, the right hemisphere. So we've got a list of um, functions that we can look at for the left and the right hemisphere. Now, again, this is just research has shown us that they're associated with it. On the diagrams I have for my students, I get them to try and match these up before looking through for a spoiler. But if we look at the left side of the brain, it's more associated with um, what we'll, we'll look and see what people see could be the, the commonality between them. So for the left side of the brain, things like speech and language, um, maths, logic, these uh, functions seem to be associated with a lot of the activity that we'll see in the left side of the brain. Now, these are analytical um, things. These are scientific, it's methodical. They are what we call linear, um, almost reductionist um, concepts. You know, just they work in speech, language, maths, all have rules to them. Okay. They have systems. Um, so we can see this kind of quite a cerebral side to the brain there. Now, no pun intended with cerebral. On the right hemisphere, we have motor functions, visual spatial awareness, um, musical ability, creativity, imagination, intuition. The things that are associated with the right side of the brain are more holistic. Okay, They are often... Uh, they're, they don't follow the same specific sets of rules. There's more of a degree of spontaneity to them. And that's the two sets of functions that we seem to associate. Now, in an essay, we wouldn't have to put all of the detail of all of that into it. But um, here's some criticisms of what we would want to be looking at. We have research um, based on the example we used at the start with the presenting information to the left and right visual field, the split brain research. That research has shown a lot of... Um, evidence to suggest that the left side of the brain is involved in language processing. Um, however, there has been challenging research done by um, a, case, a case study um, by a man called Turk on a patient called JW, who found that after a stroke, the, um, the patient they were studying was able to develop language abilities in the right hemisphere. Now, Beyond this, there's another individual differences point here, and it's more probably about maybe a, some form perhaps of evolutionary adaptation, rather adaptation, but there seems to be a correlation between handedness and immune disorders, particularly things like um, allergies. So this correlation between people being left-handed, having mathematical ability, and then having quite a lot of problems with allergies. Now, again, it's not it's a strength or a limitation. We're just looking to th say that this suggests that the same genes may be involved in lateralization and immune functioning. Another thing to look at is a researcher called Sharglavsky has showed us that lateralization actually decreases over age. So the older people get, the less we have this distinction between the left brain and the right brain. The researchers have um, looked at this, they have questioned it before, suggesting that it may be... Um, to do with experience, the brain itself becomes more experienced in doing things, or it could be a, some form of compensation, you know, just that happens where the the brain starts to develop our functions maybe because of 
a level of mental decline. Either one of those things can be put forward as a possibility. Now, the research we've looked at with the split brain research is has very, very small samples and has to have very contrived conditions for it. People really have to be focused on that dot in the middle of the screen because if people are looking around, the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere can communicate information really through both of the eyes experiencing um, all of the information that they see. So there's a lack of ecological validity and a lack of population validity for that research. However, again, there are real-life applications clinically for looking at if somebody does have areas of the brain that have been affected, one hemisphere more than the other, we can suggest um, maybe what could be things to expect in terms of de the degree of functioning that they might be impaired in. Beyond this, there's been things done to do with learning styles and people that kind of been um, handedness, le um, left brain dominant or right brain dominant, as well as career choices. Now, I hope that has been helpful. Thanks for listening.